Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. A warm welcome to everyone listening to another edition of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Happy New Year, everybody. It's great to uh, have you with us uh, at the outset of 2021. We certainly hope uh, this year will be a great one for everybody. I got Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner with me. Uh, Let's start with Phil today. Uh, um, Phil, turning it to you, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'd launch in today with a, a topic that I've been meaning to address uh, directly or indirectly, and it was brought to my attention by a reader or a listener question that we got uh, inbound a few days ago or maybe a week ago. And it, it read um, that Buffett prefers businesses with lack of change, a lack of change. Is this principle still relevant in this time and age? I thought that was a very succinct, thoughtful question, and it's something that I've been thinking about in the in the concept related to the concept of just forecastability. Um, I think it's striking to me, to say the least, that coming off of a year like 2020 and even just the early days here of 2021, how little humility there is out there in the world about forecasting the future. You would think that a year where basically no one had a forecast worth anything uh, that that there would be you know kind of a bull market in in humbleness and humility and and saying i don't know and instead it seems like the exact opposite that every time someone puts out a forecast that's dead wrong it's it's not just shrugged off it's embraced and and almost a sign of like oh yeah sure of course and, and it's just bizarre to me so i think that gets to the heart of this issue i don't think Look, I think backing up a stack, I think value investing, if that's the heart of the question here, is the wrong way to frame it. Because I think preferring a business with a lack of change isn't about just reversion to the mean, right? I take reversion to the mean and sort of Graham old school value investing as being a very practical implementation of the philosophy. And so that implementation was this business has been ignored, neglected, forgotten, it's trading at a price that's quantitatively cheap. I don't have to forecast anything. That's the appeal. All I'm betting on is one simple factor, which is there is 80 cents of realizable value on the dollar here. I can buy it for 50 or 60, and it'll eventually get somewhere closer to that 80, and I can burn the other 20. I don't have to be right very much, right? That's a very simple trade, and that worked for a long time. It hasn't worked for decades, but that's certainly how it came about. And I think that principle was instilled certainly in Buffett because it, it works so well. It's a very powerful concept. And so I think it's it's tied very, very closely to maybe his second most famous tenet, which is to just not lose money. And so if you're going about the business of investing from kind of the upside down perspective of not making money, but instead just avoiding loss, then of course you want to avoid businesses that change too much. Of course you want to seek out a lack of change because that's the easiest way to avoid loss. And so I don't think this principle is any less relevant today than it has ever been because I think the less a business changes and the the slower the rate of change, I guess I should say, the more predictable it is. And as investors, at some level, what we all need is predictability. And so look, if you're one of those people that can... I was reading something the other day. I, let's use um, let's use Spotify as an example. If you're one of those people that has a deep insight into where the music industry is going to be, and in 10 years, you're truly confident in what that market looks like, and you're truly confident in what those unit economics look like, and you're truly confident in what Spotify's market share is going to be, and you're truly confident in what the market is going to be willing to pay for that kind of business, then by all means, you may have a very investable business case there to be made. But think about what I just said there. I layered one assumption on top of another assumption on top of another assumption. It was not a simple, this is a static 
pool of assets that's reverting to the mean because it's ostensibly worth, you know, the price of the assets that are listed on the page. That's a very simple case. That is not a deep, controversial set of assumptions. But when you start layering all these assumptions on top of each other, the forecastability just inherently goes down. And so when businesses are changing rapidly, it, it introduces great upside. Obviously, if you can catch the tiger by the tail, you have the opportunity for enormous upside. And that's great. And there's room for that by all means. I mean, we want risk takers. We want investors supplying capital, those types of ideas. And that's why at one end of the spectrum, you have venture capitalists that are willing to take those bets because they know the majority of their bets are not going to work out. But they know the ones that do, if they do their job well, are going to pay off enormously. But it's also why they're extremely diversified, right? I mean, you never see a venture capitalist putting 15, 20, 40% of their portfolio into a series A, it just doesn't happen for good reason. So I think you just have to be very clear as to what it is you're trying to do. And I would tie it back secondarily to probably one of the other top five most powerful business thoughts that you could have, you know, beyond the concept of, of what's actually forecastable or predictable and what you can analyze and beyond the concept of not trying to make money, but rather avoid loss. And that's the concept that Bezos has laid out is, is Bezos himself is seeking things that don't change. Right. I mean, so everybody kind of cast Buffett in this light of like, okay, he's this old guy, you know, what he did work for him. That's great. Good for him. And, you know, then this guy Bezos comes along and turns the world upside down. And look, Bezos, by all definitions, Amazon is, in my opinion, the greatest business of its generation. And what's it built on? What he says is he's looking for things that are not going to change. What's not going to change? Customers are always going to want broader selection. They're always going to want lower prices. They're also always going to want faster delivery or faster service. And he's built his entire business around that. So you don't have to take it from Warren Buffett. Take it from Jeff Bezos that this concept of instead of seeking things that are going to change, you know, again, that's a perfectly valid game to play. It's just a far harder game to play. So. I think it says something when, by anyone's definition, two of the most successful businessmen to have ever walked the earth are seeking a lack of change. And so my response to the reader's question would be, it's a wonderful question. It's a great problem to think about. But in my opinion, it is absolutely relevant in this day and age and and maybe even more relevant than ever, because I, I don't know if you can quantify this, and I'm not sure that I believe it entirely, but I think the pace of change is probably higher now than it's been in most of the rest of our lifetimes. And so if things are changing more rapidly around us in the world, wouldn't you want them to put a premium on things you can actually predict and the things that are changing to the lesser degree? I, I don't know. So th- th- those are my thoughts. I'd be curious, Elliot and John, what, what you guys think. It's such an interesting topic. It's something I think about a lot from different angles. One of my favorite essays I read a while back was by uh, Sanjay Bakshi, who has a blog, Fundue Professor. And he called uh, Buffett and Munger, or really actually called it the Munger-Phil Fisher framework, a momentum framework in contrast to a mean reversion framework. He's like, momentum's a dirty word for value investors, but they were just looking for a different kind of momentum. What they were looking for is persistence of high returns over a long period of time. And so in order to isolate on that, you're talking about a degree of inertia that can't happen uh, in a context where there is a whole lot of change in the nature of the business and how they compete in their product uh, and all that. But then when, you know, as, as you very appropriately call, called out uh, Bezos there, I mean, he's obviously operating in an area with a lot of change you can't truly identify persistence of high returns in the way that the uh, traditional framework would do. But you can isolate on certain variables, certain elements where there's a degree of consistency, right? Delighting customers in Amazon's case. And, you know, I've often described myself as someone who likes to seek out change in investing. And I'm looking to either underwrite to change happening faster or slower than expected. And in doing so, I'm looking to try to distill the essence of a given situation and isolate on one or two key variables and really understand them as well as I possibly can. And, you know, I I don't necessarily know if mean reversion is the right way to think about it, but 
Um, I think it's all about uh, looking at it holistically and finding ways to simplify. And from there, I mean, you, you are looking for less change, right? You you want the consistency in that one or one key variable that you're able to isolate against. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, this idea of anti-technology investing or looking away from technology, though, I mean, for a while, it might have worked. But the problem you start running into is, um, I don't know, if you go back like 20, 30 years ago, technology meant something very different than it means today. So like things do change. Technology meant the things that were like the building blocks. Uh, like they were sciency, they were futuristic. They were the building blocks of, uh, of the next stage of things. Um, but today, when you think about what's called technology, it's like any company that is built on the web first is considered technology to a lot of people. And I don't necessarily think uh, that framework's relevant at all. There are a lot of companies that are built first and foremost uh, as digital companies, um, but they're really doing things that are not technological at all. They've innovated or advanced a business model and made it better for customers. So, you know, I just worry about taking too holistic a uh, framework, in, in, or, sorry, not holistic, but uh, too rigid a framework in that sense. Um, so, you know, I, re I really think people should like broaden their minds and stop thinking in terms of those labels. Um, and, you know, I think we should uh, all appreciate the fact that our world is has been undergoing profound change. And COVID is one of the unique, most, un I mean, frightening, but unique events that we will, uh, shoot, I don't want to make myself a forecaster here. And, and eat my words, but it will be one of the most profound events of our lifetime. One of the most like meaningful change catalyzers we will ever experience in more ways than any other cat. Like 9-11 was a big freaking deal, scary as hell. A lot of things changed, but the magnitude of the change and the amount of things that changed are nowhere near what we're going to have during and after this period. So like, I don't see... I, I, the idea of avoiding change and looking for a consistency, like, yeah, I, I like the way you defined it in a much narrower sense. Everything's changing. Like there are certain constants though, and focus on those constants. Yeah. And I, I think you raised an important point and I want to hear from John too, but I think it's that, you know, you, you just have to keep your own abilities in, in check. Right. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you can forecast and what you can't. So I think that's where, the reader or the, the listener was maybe coming in with this question of, you know, is this principle still intact? Like we know it worked for Buffett, but was that the old days? And I think the reason it worked for Buffett was because it was a perfect match for his own skills and interests and abilities, right? And so my point is that it worked for him, but it also worked for a guy like Jeff Bezos, who, as you pointed out, like technology is such an arbitrary label to put on things, right? I mean, Sears was a tech company in a lot of ways back in its day, right? And and bore a lot of the same hallmarks that Amazon does today. And of course, Amazon was built on the backbone of the digital infrastructure of the world now much earlier than other companies are that are now trying to catch up. But every company that's moving forward is in some way or another a technology company. And technology shapes all of our lives. It isn't just a computer or whatever. I mean, that's a very dumb and narrow way to characterize the word technology. So I've always rejected this concept that, that anything about investing, if it had the word value or value investing attached to it, was somehow anti-technology. I mean, again, to jump on my soapbox about this, I think value investing has almost become a self-defeating term because... It means so many different things to so many different people, and it's almost always taken out of concept, out of context. It's just not helpful anymore. I mean, to me, I mean, this it's become a cliche unto itself. All investing, if it's intelligent, is value investing because all you're trying to do is find something that's trading at a bargain price for whatever that reason may be. It may be a startup with no revenue because you truly do have the ability to forecast what that's going to turn into. For me, that's a much harder job. Than, than, than something else out there, right? I mean, for me, the easiest job would be something that was, let's say, in bankruptcy in a distress situation where I could see why something had gone wrong. I could see the path out. 
I could see you know that path a lot more clearly than a pre-revenue startup, let's say, or a, a the common stock of a company um, that was cheap for some reason, and I could see a path to owning it at a certain level of returns for five or ten years or something like that. But look, that that has nothing to do with anti-technology or simple mean reversion or whatever, right? There's elements of all of that kind of stuff, but change as a as a crux of the thesis. I mean, you you can interpret it however you want, but it doesn't have to be the way I think it's often characterized, if that makes sense. Maybe I'll jump in uh, if that's okay. Um, I, yeah, I think, Phil, you now kind of talk a little bit about kind of the circle of competence and what is everyone skilled at doing uh, when it comes to investing. And uh, I think that's exactly right. You know, you um, are expert at analyzing a capital structure, let's say, and investing across the capital structure. Someone who is today investing in a Tesla or DoorDash may have, may know nothing about capital structure investing or distressed investing. And so that definitely uh, does apply. I think I would agree with Elliot when it comes to kind of uh, change in investing that basically I've come around to the view that everything is changing. It's really difficult to find something that's not actually changing in right. some way or not under threat. So Actually, something that stuck with me that Glenn Surowick said just uh, a day ago uh, when I recorded a session with him for Best Ideas 2021 was that basically all he tries to do is to be on the right side of change. So not knowingly investing in something that's over time going to zero, but trying to invest in things that are actually going to be relevant. Um, they're not necessarily the hottest things. And that's where kind of my problem with internet investing and all of that comes in. It's really more a matter of valuation and the fact that those things are just really popular now and there's a lot of froth. Uh, so I can't um, get comfortable with them from a, you know, from the standpoint of what I'm paying for them. But there's no denying that companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon are great companies. And um, I do think it helps to have someone at the helm of those companies who's not trying to guess uh, the next kind of technological move or revolution all the time, uh, because then uh, you inevitably end up missing it. You know, like Sun Microsystems with the network computer uh, that just wasn't the right move at that point in time. So that's where Jeff Bezos comes in. And, and Phil, you, you said it uh, exactly right, which is he focuses on the things that don't change. So I think when you have someone like that at the helm, even if the business itself is in an innovative changing market, but you have someone where they're focusing on the right things, I think you can be a lot more comfortable investing there because um, that business may have a lot more durability than one that's just chasing the latest uh, technological innovation. So I'll just, you know, kind of being on the right side of change. Um, one example for me, if you take, let's say, the ocean shipping industry, pretty much has been in the doldrums for years all of those companies are dirt cheap. Um, and so from a valuation standpoint, I like looking at them. But I I much rather own, let's say, a company that's in container shipping, where I feel like containers are going to remain a standard in shipping for a very long time to come. When I can buy that kind of a company at the same price as a um you know, crude oil tanker company, I'd much rather buy the container shipping company. So that's just one example of trying to get on the right side of change while not paying uh, too much. Over to you. I think you said it perfectly. And, and you guys both made clarifications that are probably a better way of answering the listener's question than what I have. One is that it's not a lack of change, it's a persistence. You need something that persists, right? So Bezos is attacking the persistent customer desire for broader selection, lower prices, faster service, et cetera. And, and, and as you said, John, everything is indeed changing. So, you know, even when you were 
you know, maybe playing a liquidation or a net net or something like that, that business was by definition changing. It was probably decaying. And so you were just betting that you could eventually realize the value of those assets in liquidation before the values degraded further. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, everything I think we just said kind of sums it up well, which is, or John, what you said to sum it up well, which is you you have to be on the right side of that change, right? Which is what makes liquidations or uh, lower quality decaying businesses, however you want to characterize them, can be a little tricky too, right? I mean, it's not just on the one side of the equation trying to catch lightning in a bottle with some fast-growing um, you know, startup or something. It's very tricky on the other side too. If you're on the wrong side of change and a business is decaying out from underneath you, um, it's pretty easy to get hurt and it's pretty easy to lose money. So you do have to be careful. So Elliot, what you said about seeking out places where you can find change. I think what you probably meant is where you can find odds that you deem favorable, that you're right about being on the correct side of change. And that is, of course, what we all want. So I think by characterizing it, instead of saying, you know, is someone out there looking for a lack of change or is someone anti-technology in investing or mean reverting as an investor or something like that, I think it's much better said that you're looking for some form of persistence and looking to be on the right side of change. That's exactly right. And you know what? I was thinking a lot when John mentioned management, like it gets to having a management team with Tom Russo's capacity to suffer because in order to truly, you know, like sometimes you have really good assets and they're well positioned for the state of where things are going, but you don't have the right incentive structure and the right management team to get from here to there. And so it's really important to kind of have that built-in capacity to suffer and an adaptability. Um, so like adaptability and resiliency are incredibly important. Um, and those are factors I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about. Like, you know, to the typical, in, in traditional value investing, your margin of safety is the price you pay relative to the worth. But Perhaps the true margin of safety is the resiliency of the asset to persist through different regimes around it. And regimes can mean anything in that context. But I think there's something really important in kind of revisiting how you think about um, what safety looks like. Agreed. Okay, great. Uh, let's uh, move on to our second topic. Elliot, over to you. Okay, I think this is a really natural segue from this idea of change because it's something I've been obsessing over and relates directly to change. Um, several years ago, Bill Gates on his reading list put a book called uh, The Grid, um, which is a history um, and an analysis of the grid. And it's effectively, you know, I, I, I think it's three parts. In my head, I break it down to three parts. One is like how our grid got to be where it is today what it does today and you know what you would build uh if you were able to start with a clean slate like a true tabula rasa and build you know the perfect grid for what we need today and sorry if i wasn't clear the grid meaning uh our power grid um the lines and wires and how power and energy get to our houses and and factories and schools and everywhere and so I don't necessarily want to talk about the grid itself, but um, one of the key takeaways from the book is if you were to start with a clean slate today, the grid we have is not the grid we would build. We are encumbered by our past, though the world has changed meaningfully around it. And so, you know, one of the areas I've been spending a lot of time on, uh, those of you who followed me for a while know that I was involved in Grubhub pretty early. Uh, I've spent a ton of time on food delivery. I've actually, uh, you know, on, on the podcast here, I had uh, Isaac Schwartz as, as a special guest talking about the logistics of food. And so I've been doing this sweeping project, analyzing logistics of food, all the new players trying to take their own efforts towards change, driving change, engineering change, and building a different sort of uh, modern infrastructure to get our food today. Um, whether that be the Instacarts or the Ocados of the world or the takeaways, Grubhubs and uh, DoorDashes of the world. Uh, but really, one of, the, one of the things that I keep getting stuck on is this idea that, you know, these p 
pieces like Instacart, for example, I get so hung up on this notion that it's an interim, not end state of things. So for example, it's it's extremely inefficient to have a supermarket that was built to be in a prime location that attracts customers uh, with a really large uh, square footage that's spread out so that you could display things to draw eyes once people are already in and steer them toward margin driving products and have certain loss leaders in some areas. Um, it's not built for someone to quickly go through aisles and efficiently put together a basket and then get it to a car and drive it to someone's door. Um, in fact, the grocery where Charlie Munger met Warren Buffett, uh, I wrote an essay that's on Manual of Ideas about this, um, looks more like what I think an optimal structure would be um, in the logistics of grocery. So when when Munger met Buffett, um, he was a clerk at the at the Buffett grocery, and effectively what you had was you had a counter, you had a phone, um, you had all these shelves in the back that were really uh, neatly and efficiently packed, so people would grab things, put them in the basket, and the clerk, like uh, Charlie Munger, would either meet someone at the front or run it to someone's house. And that's way more efficient than what Instacart does by sending someone to your neighborhood supermarket and run a rat race around these crazy aisles, which have people intermixed who are taking their slow time, looking at their lists, et cetera. You know, if you were building, where it relates to grid, if you were building today for what we want tomorrow, um, this is not what you'd build. Um, And I find that incredibly frustrating. And I find it hard and challenging to think about which assets are positioned as middle state versus end state, and whether we are even capable of uh, engineering toward what an optimal end state looks like, or if we're too encumbered by our past in that sense. Um, But then, you know, I start thinking about there are other examples that I think are related in this sense. Um, If you think about something like the waterfront of Brooklyn, which was once upon a time, a thriving port before the Port of Elizabeth in New Jersey took everything over. Um, you know, it was a thriving port, had all this warehouse um, and, and industrial infrastructure right along the water. So the most beautiful uh, sight lines and um, real estate in, in Brooklyn really weren't accessible to people for like uh, entertaining and leisurely uses has now been like adapted and reused in an entirely different way. And it's thriving and it's beautiful and it's interesting. Obviously, COVID makes things a little different right now. But in general, that you, you get the picture. Like what was there has been repurposed to what, uh, you know, fits best for today. Um, so, you know, that's one area where I think it's really shown through where you repurpose existing assets um, and obviously supplement with building new ones uh, uh, on top of or, uh, or, or related to. Um, but I'm curious if you guys could think of any other examples or had any thoughts on these uh, specific examples um, where there's this situation where we are to an extent encumbered by our past, where in an optimal state, uh, if we were starting from scratch with a tabula rasa, we'd built something quite different than we're actually doing today. Um, and, uh, you know, if there are any other examples where the future might look very meaningfully different for the assets in place than, than is out there right now. I think the biggest one that jumps to mind for me is um, I know some of the folks that are involved with one of the biggest uh, parking companies in the world. So they own parking lots and parking decks, uh, particularly in in big congested cities like Chicago. And, uh, you know, look, I don't know when the timing is. It's not exactly forecastable, by, in my opinion, for most people and certainly not for me. But I think at some point in coming decades, and that's decades plural, uh, it's reasonable to believe that there will be in these denser cities, at least, um, far less of a reliance on individuals driving their own cars. And so if you needed to go into a major downtown area, chances are you wouldn't need to drive yourself and then park. And so if you look at the amount of square footage and you look at the amount of money and even things like tax revenue that are propped up by um, the parking industry, um, that's probably all going to change. And then if you zoom out even from there and you look at just the fa- the fabric of modern life and how much infrastructure in, in our day-to-day lives are shaped by um, the car culture, at least in the U.S. and in most countries, I guess now, um, you know, that, that could well be turned on its head. I mean, it could be, I don't think it'll be as stark as going back to, you know, the 
pre-Eisenhower interstate days, but um, I think it could be pretty stark when you start just completely rewriting. And look, I think it'll be mostly good. I mean, it could be like your um, analogy of the waterfront there where, you know, it was kind of useful as a, as a commercial port, so to speak. At one point, it kind of fell into disuse and now it's been redeveloped. I think the same will largely be true of a lot of the real estate devoted to parking and cars. But, uh, you know, it's going to entail change and it's going to entail investment and it's going to entail winners and losers. So I think it's absolutely incumbent to be on the right side of that change, that's for sure. So, I, you know, from an investor's lens, it would be really interesting to think, okay, you know, you've got interest rates very low. You've got, for now at least, and again, the COVID pandemic aside, you've got what used to be very steady, predictable demand for for transportation by car. I mean, you had certainly some governments. Um, I know here near Chicago, the the former mayor sold um, a very high profile bridge on a, what I believe was a 99 year lease um, to an infrastructure fund. Um, I'd go ahead and take the under on that 99 years <laughs> being the right amount of duration anyway. Whatever the duration is of those cash flows, it's it's probably going to prove to be dangerous. Um, so it'd be very interesting to think, you know, okay, what's the right rate of return to require if you were going to buy, you know, a parking deck in a central business district? I mean, those are some really interesting questions right now. So anyway, I, I agree with you, by the way. That's a great book. Um we are totally encumbered by our past. I mean, what's happened with PG&E in Northern California is a great example of it. They're totally hamstrung by very old infrastructure that has not been maintained while there's a lot of problems with that company. Um, And if you were redesigning that grid, it would look very different today. I mean, not to be Debbie Downer in what's already a difficult environment, but I think if you go back to maybe... Five or six years ago, there was a, an attack on the grid in the San Jose area there where some one or more people were shooting high-powered rifles at a substation there in the San Jose area that had they been successful in taking it down, could have taken down most of Silicon Valley for days or weeks or potentially even longer. And you look at how vulnerable the grid really is. Um, it's just an unbelievable Achilles heel waiting to be exploited um, by somebody. It's really, really scary and sobering to think about. And it's largely because, as you pointed out, it was built a long time ago under far different circumstances. The world changed around it and and we didn't keep up and we didn't invest as we should have to modernize it. So um, it's definitely going to have to change at some point. Well, I got to ask, did you know about reef technologies in the parking lot space? Uh, I've, it's been a long time, but that's not who I was referring to. I'm not, I'm not that familiar with it. Do you know what they did in the end of November? Cause this is fascinating. No. And it's right on to what you were talking about. So they own 4,500 parking lots and garages, uh, in major, uh, metropolitan areas. They raised $1 billion in November for, uh, transforming the role of parking lots. And it was two separate raises. They raised $700 million from the likes of SoftBank, the Vision Fund, obviously, uh, in order to take their parking lots and repurpose them as ghost kitchens with famous restaurant brands that are designed to be neighborhood hubs that quickly get you know, cooked high-quality food near their end customers. And then a separate $300 million to purchase even more real estate, more parking lots to do the same thing in other high priority areas, which was backed by Oak Tree Capital Management, you know, Hmm. the Oak Tree that we all know. Um, So I kind of, I find it like really interesting because this is exactly what you're talking about. Um, I find it interesting because you have the value investor who ends up on the property side, which is something I feel like they could confidently underwrite against. And you have the vision fund on the like high sticker price, like, out there kind of valuation, uh, repurposing uh, or building the future using past assets side of things. And it kind of makes me pull together in my head, both our, uh, your topic and and, and this one in that sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's not who I was referring to uh, with the company I had in mind, but that's really, really interesting. And it's particularly interesting because like you said, it was split into two. And, And like you said, I mean, I'd be way more comfortable accepting a lower rate of return if I was betting on, or I don't know if they're a secured buyer, just taking an equity interest in uh, more of the real estate side of things. Because as you said, I mean, the, the future is is tough to predict. And maybe the, the kitchens, ghost kitchens, whatever. I mean, it's stunning to watch 
parking garages get transformed into field hospitals, unfortunately, in the last year, which has been um, something I don't think anybody would have predicted. Um, but if you had the real estate flexibility and, and you know, one project or business venture didn't work out, I mean, again, we get into a broader debate as to what the real value is of um, downtown or urban real estate right now, given this, in my opinion, very short-term view that that cities are out of favor and people are going to all live in the middle of nowhere. But I would be more comfortable making that bet that if you were secured by or had an equity interest in the real estate itself and were supporting the repurposing of it from parking to something else, um, that seems like a very a bet that could be handicapped somewhat easily, right? And again, like whether, you know, what would be the right way to take on like a venture style bet, whether it's ghost kitchens or whatever. I mean, that just entails a wider range of possible outcomes. So certainly some of those are going to have far more upside and and you should capture that, but some of them are going to have a lot more downside and it's going to be tough. Yeah. And it's interesting to think that the parking lots themselves are the most strategically located and least encumbered by their past asset to transform in this way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I the dep- certainly I'm not a total real estate expert, but the zoning gets a little tough in some of them. And, and look, a parking garage is expensive. So you have, depending on how recently it was built, um, you may have a little bit of a sunk cost issue there to overcome. But uh, you're right. I mean, they are in often some fantastic locations and... Uh, you know, the real estate is, is is certainly a scarce asset in a lot of those places. So it's interesting. Yeah, I'll jump in uh, with some thoughts. I'm kind of struggling to think of the real investing implications or how we as investors can take advantage of some of this. Maybe, Elliot, you have ideas in the, in the food uh, distribution space. Um, but it's clear that pretty much were encumbered in all sorts of ways, um, you know, and and I think, let's say, taxis versus Uber or, um, you know, hotels versus Airbnb. Um, whenever you have uh, something where, you know, we're encumbered by an existing state that's suboptimal, and I think taxis is a great example of that, you're probably going to run into a lot of uh, lobbying uh, by those who would get uh, disrupted and uh, therefore a lot of regulation. So that's something to consider. Um, I think, Phil, your point on uh, cities was a great one because that's such a huge example of how we're encumbered by our past because our city design is just way too automobile-focused. And uh, I personally enjoy cities the most that have a huge kind of central part of the city that's closed off to automobiles where uh, you can just walk around or ride a bike or something like that. And uh, so that's just a huge example. Another really big example is energy. I mean, we're burning fossil fuels to provide energy and not just burning fossil fuels for energy, but if you think of um, oil uh, derivatives, uh, that permeates our life. Plastics and everything else is is pretty much a derivative of crude oil. And it didn't really have to be that way, but it was the easiest way to get uh, you know, fast economic growth uh, during the industrialization period. And, uh, you know, we could have proceeded in a different, more environmentally friendly way, probably. Things would have taken longer. Uh, But, you know, you think of something like electric vehicles. I think there was a boom in electric vehicles back when the original Nikola Tesla was around, or there was at least a thought that uh, they could uh, be the the way to go. But it turned out uh, that, you know, uh, the the gasoline or diesel-powered cars ultimately won out. Um, or another thing is uh, inputs today into, let's say, uh, computers. Why are we typing instead of using voice, for example? Uh, that's probably another thing uh, where we're encumbered by our past. So everything is now built around typing, and you know that may change in the future, and is changing with things like Alexa and so forth. But that's you know that's going to take time. Um, you know, in, in the real estate space, malls are a great example where. Uh, mall designs um, really would be very different these days. They wouldn't be necessarily places to sell things, but places to gather and experience things. You know, like the uh, now what they're doing with, let's say, the Nike kind of experience or other things, because you can ultimately just order things online and and do the buying um, on the web. 
so you don't need to be in a physical space uh, to do that. And finally, an example uh, is also money. You know, um, we are encumbered by uh, the monetary system we have. Uh, you think of, uh, you know, we used to have the gold standard and so forth, and and people still talk about that, um, that maybe gold is going to be worth a lot more going forward. But if you think about it, there's really not much you can do with with gold uh, as, as money. And now we have crypto, but I don't think crypto is an end state because um, we know it's not really efficient from an uh, energy use point, from an environmental standpoint, and probably not even from a technological standpoint once we really progress with computing power and so forth. Um, you know, we might actually be encumbering ourselves with crypto if it does take off uh, in a huge way, even though right now it seems like this great uh, innovation. So there's a ton of examples, and I just would love to figure out how we can actually use this to our advantage as uh, investors. I'll uh, I'll throw one else, one more out there that's pretty fun. I'm going to let you have the fun with the gold and, and crypto fans out there, so I'm not going to get into such substantive issues as that. But as a point to something that to Elliot's, that, Elliot's original question about what are we still encumbered by that's just sort of an artifact of the past. And, and John, you made me think of it when you said, you know, uh, electronic communications and typing is, I don't know how obscure this is, most people probably already know this, but the QWERTY keyboard and the layout that we all use today to type on, regardless of whether it's a desktop, laptop, phone, or whatever, that layout of keys was actually designed to slow you down because it was set up for typewriters back when they were manual typewriters because if you typed faster than a certain speed, the keys would all jam together. So you could actually train yourself to type 20, 30, 40, 50 words a minute faster than you do now on the existing keyboard layout you have if you just rearrange the keys into a little bit more natural pattern, but nobody does that because even in this day and age, I mean, even my kids are still learning how to type on a QWERTY keyboard. So I think I, I like to throw that one out to a lot of people and they say, oh, well, guys, of course, we're just going to get rid of fossil fuels and we're going to get rid of roads and interstates and parking lots. And it's all just going to go away in like the next couple of months, maybe a few years. And I'm like, you realize we still use a QWERTY keyboard and all this other stuff. Like, It's actually really hard to institute sweeping change once it gets completely hardwired into the society and the, and the, the systems we all use. Okay, but ready for one of the hills I'm willing to die on? <laughs> like the okay. One of the things I'm ready to go to bat for. And sure. while I could talk really fast when I get pretty fired up about something, you could type much faster than you can talk even on a QWERTY keyboard. So, you know, I oh, have sure, a hard I time... Agree. I have a hard time seeing voice as an interface replacing that. And I think it was uh, Remo uh, who recently tweeted out about how like being a skilled typer is actually a superpower in the modern, modern age. Like It really enables and empowers you to do things that a lot of other people can't. Uh, like being able to shut off your uh, thinking, be, being able to listen to someone completely fluidly while your brain just hammers out the keys and types something up. Really, really powerful in certain contexts, especially now that we're kind of interfacing with our computers a lot more than others, uh, other times. Um, John, you had so many interesting examples in there, and I want to latch on to so many of them in different ways. Um, one thing I want to like just preface it all with, I don't immediately know of in, <clears throat> any investment implications that I'm willing to underwrite behind in these situations, but I like doing these holistic projects where I go through something through and through. And just, you know, no specific objective, but just trying to get smart about what's out there, what the different possible paths are, and what the important assets are that are in place and that and or that need to be in place in order for things to work. Um, you just never know when there might actually be uh, an actionable investment. Like Roku to me came out of uh, doing a couple years of work on the trade desk. And so, you know, uh, really learning about the ecosystem of uh, online advertising and about where things were going and who had the right assets for that. And when I started working on the trade desk, I didn't know if I'd ever uh, make an investment there. I made a very short-lived one in the trade desk itself and made a meaningful one in Roku. And in some ways, I'd call it like a life changer for me. Um, but I didn't know that that was going to come out of this work I was gonna, I was doing. Um, so you know, I'm willing to put in the time. I'm willing to uh, end up with not making a single investment in some of these spaces, and then you know something might happen out of it. 
but yeah, so many interesting examples in there. I thought the the malls one was interesting, uh, if only to point out the fact that for the longest time, the smartest uh, re-adaptation of a mall was backfilling anchor tenant space with movie theaters. And then you have another degree of change and you're like, well, maybe we got to try again. Um, but yeah, experiential is still a theme that's relevant there. And, and I think, you know, one day when we're back to going to public spaces, that's that's where it's going to go. So I, I totally agree with you, Elliot, by the way, on the, the the typing thing and it being a super skill and it not um, voice or whatever, not replacing it. So why do you think it is then? That, have you taught yourself how to type on a non-QWERTY keyboard? Because you can't be faster typing if you use an alternative keyboard. And there's a tiny handful of people out there that do it, but I certainly don't. I've never taken the time to learn to do it, but I should. So why do you think most people don't? I'll tell you why I don't, but I don't think my answer is necessarily relevant to everyone. I'm a freakishly fast typer, and I can't imagine like having to suffer through a period where I can't type at the rate I can without knowing for sure that I could exceed the threshold I've already put out there for myself. I'll have to see if I can go find the studies from people that have measured the improvement, but I think it's for even for, you know, professional uh, court reporters and stenographers, I mean, they're all able to jump, you know, 20, 30, 40 words a minute at least by going away from a QWERTY keyboard. So I'm with you though. That's it. That's actually exactly my point is I think almost everybody gets to a point where they feel like they're good enough and then they don't want to suffer through the pain of going back to fourth grade or whatever when they learn how to type and suffer mm-hmm. through that, um, even though there's a real benefit to it. So it's uh, that's just my example of being encumbered by the past and a real example of inertia because there's a real benefit there and just very few people are willing to suffer the the pain to, to actually improve and, and do it differently, myself included. Well, just for the record, I'll put myself in that uh, typing column as well uh, over voice. I was just uh, mentioning <laughs> it as a possibility, but uh, having gone through a, a, an investment banking analyst program, I definitely appreciate typing and actually also uh you know, like using Excel keyword uh, combinations uh, instead oh, of a yeah. mouse uh, is also a big uh, efficiency boost. So I'm definitely with you on keyboards. But then you could think of what if something like uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink takes off? Maybe uh, that's even faster than typing. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. The only way to get there, right? I, geez, the typing is so fast. But now, you know, it's interesting to think about. Um, I've been pretty fascinated by the work that Twitter's doing with spaces. And it seems like maybe one day we're going to have to host our podcast there. And they do real-time transcription. Um, and, you know, that's something that I think wasn't necessarily possible. Uh, it was just not that long ago. But now there are platforms like Otter AI, which is really interesting. You could... Uh, transcribe every anything pretty damn accurately uh, from voice to text quite quickly. Um, that takes away a, a pretty large friction of using voice as an interface, and that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, having had a lot of experience with transcription just because of the content that MOI generates, um, something like Otter AI is a good starting point, and it's actually good for searchability, be, um, you know, just keywords. Um, but it's still lacking and you cannot really use it, um, you know, commercially if, uh, if you really care about quality. So there's still some time that's going to, some improvement are required to actually have good enough automatic transcription to where it's actually enjoyable reading that stuff. Um, but it's coming. It's definitely going to happen. But just it's amazing how with the advancements in AI and so forth, uh, the semantics of uh, what we say are still uh, pretty difficult for a machine to understand. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how much that stuff's changing everything and how far, how, how, how much farther it still all has to go. Um, John, one of the other points of change you mentioned that I, I, I'm thinking about in my head as well um, was this idea of Uber uh, and transforming taxis, uh, changing the nature of taxis, the uh, in place, uh, the incumbents uh, taking issue with that using regulation, while also this, this idea of Uber taking a underutilized asset in the form of a car and turning it into an uh, asset that could generate return. 
But the regulation angle is an interesting one. And it gets me thinking, there are like a bunch of industries where you could maybe work around regulation uh, in, in a less harmful way than or less disruptive way than with Uber and enhance uh, customer value proposition. And that's definitely part of the angle behind my Naked Wines investment, which is something I've, I've mentioned a few times. But they get to be a vineyard instead of a retailer and cut out the distributor in the middle uh, while going direct to customer and giving like-for-like like value at 30% less price. Um, so there, there's definitely... Um, neat stuff happening in a lot of different places. And to relate that to our first part of this conversation, like that might be categorized as an internet and therefore technology company, but at the end of the day, I mean, they're actually a vineyard. So what the hell are they, right? Um, it's something that that doesn't fit either paradigm or other conception of how you think things, whether either being technology or not technology. I like thinking about these things a lot though. Yeah, and I'll just point out one more thing, uh, kind of media uh, distribution, right? Like if you think about Netflix, um, the uh, DVD stage of Netflix was clearly not an end state. It's interesting to think about whether the current Netflix is an end state or whether there's going to be something uh, else in the future. Um, you know, that's another i mean there's these kinds of examples abound um and you know uber knows that uh, the current f way that uber works is not an end state we're, at some point we're going to have um self-driven uh cars right so that's the race now is to try to uh, get to that point uh, whether that's going to be an end state who knows those are both really good points because they both knew that what they were doing wasn't an end state, but it was a way to own customers. And like Netflix in particular, right? The name Netflix, though they were just sending DVDs by mail. That's not very netty. Uh, you know, um, they knew they would get there one day. Uh, but both also, and I think Instacart's going to have this problem to get to the end state, they have to uh, effectively uh, destroy one of their key stakeholders. In Netflix's case, the content providers. In the case of Uber, if you go driverless, your drivers are a key stakeholder. They're toast. Um, and in Instacart's world, uh, you got to worry about the supermarkets. So it's quite disruptive. And it's it, it, it's it's a hard line, uh, hard balancing act to get to that end state while relying and leveraging some of these suppliers, knowing that you're inevitably going to destroy them. Great. Well, I think uh, you know we'll leave it there. This was, this was another fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Elliot and Phil, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening as well. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.